Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, welcome back to Flushing is Burning. I'm Grace, and as always, I'm here with Christian. Uh, we haven't been around for a couple weeks. Christian's been sick, and you will be able to hear that in his voice today. Christian, how you doing without taxing yourself too much? Well, like, the sick part was only like one or two days, but the losing my voice entirely part lasted for like two weeks, which I I highly recommend that people not get laryngitis. It is It is not a fun <laughs> thing to live through. Yeah, I've I've dealt with a few bouts of laryngitis and uh it's never fun. No, no, especially when you have to like work around children and you can't like talk to them or yell at them. You kind of just have to like move your arms and hope you understand what <laughs> they understand what you're saying. Yeah, well, kids are creative. They can figure it out. Um so in the last couple weeks that we haven't been around, the Mets have had great success and then terrible failures um i i'm gonna be honest i'm not feeling great about them making the playoffs i mean obviously it's still a a shot even if they make it i don't have great faith in them making any sort of big run in the playoffs which it could always happen but just the way they've looked has been at times good but most of the time just terrible it's it hasn't. They haven't been a fun team to watch very much the last few weeks. They've played well enough to stay in the conversation. They are still in a pennant chase, technically, by the strict definition of the term pennant chase, by the mathematics of the division and the wild card race. They are still in it. And at the time of recording, they're ten and six in July, and that sort of record extrapolated over the entirety of a season is something that can get any team into the playoffs. They just happen to be sharing a division with the Atlanta Braves, who are the best team in baseball. I don't think it can be equivocated at this point. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, you, I, I've, the division is something I've completely given up on. I don't think there's any hope of that just because the Braves are so good. You know, if it was any other year, like, yeah, like, yeah, they could they could pull that off this year, even though it's mathematically possible. I don't think that's happening. Um, and I don't think that's been the case for at least a month at this point, probably more. Um, but the you know, the Phillies and the Marlins aren't looking too hot now either. I mean, they've beaten both teams pretty well this year. Um, and Philly's not looking too hot. Miami's really not looking too hot right now, but 
it, it's one of those things that it's basically like it feels like the entire national league wildcard race is just like a mid-off between all these yeah. teams that aren't very good <laughs> yeah um and, and what's happened in the past in few weeks is that the path to the playoffs has become very muddled with a lot of middling teams but I think I can safely say that the Mets can out-talent all of them. The This idea that like the Phillies and the Marlins, as, as, as of time of recording, I believe they're both six and a half games ahead of the Mets in the wildcard race. They're not better than the Mets. And it, it shows in the record against the Mets. The Mets are four and two against the Phillies this year. They're five and two against the Marlins this year. These are teams that have rosters that are not equal to the roster that of the Mets, but like <clears throat> how much does that actually matter in the grand scheme of things? Right. I, I think that in order for the Mets to feel good about positioning themselves in the playoffs, they have to be better than the Marlins. They have to be better than the Phillies and in the stretch of the next 70 or so games, can they gain, you know, there's six games that they're down against those teams. Yes, absolutely. They can. They have, the pitching staff to do it. Everyone is fully healthy right now. Most of their hitters are hitting back to, you know, below or their average paces. It's not a fun team right now. No, because they're so far behind that everyone feels as if they're scuffling, but what they have control of right now is the two teams ahead of them in the division. If they can outplay Philadelphia, if they can outplay Miami, they have a really decent chance of making the playoffs. It's those other teams around them that they have less control over that are a bit more of a toss-up. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the wild card race, it feels like other than the National League East teams, you're looking at the you know the Reds and the Cubs in the Central, um, which the, the Reds are also pretty close to the Brewers, last I checked. So th- that could be a toss-up, whether it's Reds or Brewers there. Um, and then the Diamondbacks and the Giants in the, the West – I feel pretty comfortable saying that the Mets are better than the Cubs and the Giants. Um, Reds and Diamondbacks less so. I know the the Mets just won a series against the Diamondbacks, but it the Diamondbacks and the Reds feel like more of a toss up in terms of who's actually the better team, just because they have so many X factors on those teams. Like like the Reds, it feels like every single guy they've called up has just hit the ground running really hard, especially Ellie De La Cruz, which is just fun to watch him play baseball. Um, and then there's the Padres, which is that that's the Mets and the Padres are like the weirdest teams this year. They, there's no rhyme or reason to how they're playing in terms of what they have and how they should be playing. Um, and I mean, obviously, this brings up a lot of stupid discourse over you see spending money is not always the best thing. I prefer my team to always just spend money. Um, but it, it's it's hard to. To, to know how the Mets would stack up against these teams because they don't play them that often. They've, they're done playing the Giants this year. That is completely out of their control. They play Diamondbacks once more in September. Um, and they play the Reds once more. Have they played the Reds already this year? Yes. They have, yes. Yeah. Um, but, like, the, the, these things are way more out of their control than playing Philly and Miami where they're going to be playing them again. I mean, they play both teams, like, 10 times over the last two weeks of the season, which is going to be very insufferable. And that's why I think that the the Marlins and the Phillies are both the true targets to, to look out for. Because 
while I think the the very young top end talent in Arizona and Cincinnati is playing better than the top end talent for the Mets, those teams are also very young and not battle tested. And I understand that there isn't very much empirical evidence to suggest that young teams can't perform well in the playoffs. But like, I don't know if, if, if you're telling me that it's a one game playoff between Justin Verlander and Hunter green, like I'm taking the Mets all day there. Like I, I, I truly believe that the Reds, the Diamondbacks, the Brewers, the Cubs, the Giants, like they're not as good as, as the Mets are. And that's a really silly thing for me to say, considering the Mets are so far behind most of those teams. But I, I truly think that like, if the Mets can tunnel vision themselves against the teams that they do have control, <clears throat> sorry about that, laryngitis is going <laughs> in, against the teams that they do have control over, uh, mostly the Marlins and the Phillies, then that's that's the pathway that takes them to the playoffs. You're right about the Padres, though, because I can't really explain why the Padres have been so bad this year, except look at the Mets who have had the same season, and all of a sudden, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Of course, you can have that much talent and be four games under 500 or whatever. I mean, also, the, the Mets at least have the explanation of, like, the Mets are an older team, so, you know, they, they there's different things that come with that. I don't think the Padres are that old either. That one's just really weird. Like No, they're... They're not old, but I think they're kind of sneaky old in the sense that, mm. yeah, Soto, Machado, uh, Hater, even like these players, they're all in the quote unquote primes of their career, but they have so much major league experience already that Machado is already showing the regression that of someone in his early to mid thirties. Josh Hader is you know, still electric. He's still, he's still a wonderful closer, but he's not the same electric closer he was with Milwaukee. Like they have a team that is constructed of really, really young superstars who have all played three to four more seasons than many players their age have already played. Yeah, that's, that's true. I didn't even think about that. I mean, I feel like Machado and Soto both came up when they were, what, 19? Mm -hmm. These are guys who have had a lot of, and hater when you throw that hard, you're aging yourself. Um, I think the other issue with the Mets wildcard chances is, I think it comes down to the next week, because if they can't do anything over the next week to, to show that they might be doing anything, they're probably going to start selling off, selling off, not, probably not anyone of huge note, but they're going to be selling off some of the one year, two year deal guys that, you know, make up the roster. And at that point, they're just going to coast the rest of the way. I mean, if you sell Tommy Pham, who's been hitting very well, although he's currently dealing with a uh, groin issue um, or Mark Hanna or something who hasn't been the best this year, but still these are guys that you remove them from the roster and you replace them with Mark Vientos and who uh, DJ Stewart, the team gets worse. Who's DJ Stewart, by the way? Like, I, I still don't know who this person is. That he, that was that was a really fun drag bunt he he pulled off against Boston. But I'm, I'm I haven't looked up his baseball reference page, and I think I've just resigned myself to never knowing who DJ Stewart is. DJ Stewart is is very they they call him up very clearly a Buck guy. Buck keeps playing him. He played in Baltimore starting in 2018, which means Buck has uh, had him on a team before. Um, it's, I think he's fun. I don't know why he's starting so much. 
I mean, now I know Marte's hurt, but before Marte was had the the migraines and everything, like why was he still starting like three days a week? Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I think you're you're right in the sense that like there is a sense of urgency for this Mets team to do something. At the same time, though, I feel like we've been saying the same thing for the past month. <laughs> like if the Mets don't do something this week, then they're going to be out of it, and yet they're still in it. And part of that has to do with like you know. Miami is in the midst of an eight-game losing streak. The Phillies are in the midst of a four-game losing streak right now. Like the teams immediately to the left and to the right of them aren't doing so hot either. But like, at, I, I kind of want to say that there is urgency. But like, if in the next two weeks the Mets coasted five hundred and are still like eight games behind in the playoff hunt and still technically mathematically in the race, I'm not going to be surprised. My my one concern here is if they coast the next week and the Mets and the front office decides, well, we got to get something out of some of these players. If we don't, if it's not going to be a huge success season, maybe we get something out of some of these players. They trade someone like David Robertson. <laughs> they will not be winning as many games because no. that bullpen is horrendous. And Robertson is their one hope to be able to keep the game close. Like Adovino is good sometimes. He's showing signs of his of his age too this season. Drew Smith is all over the place. That hurts me to say as someone who is, you know, loves Drew. Um, it's Trevor Gott is absolutely horrific. <laughs> like it's, it's almost, I mean, I feel bad. You don't want a guy to be bad, but the fact that they basically spent $7 million to, to trade for him and Chris Flexen and then DFA Chris Flexen. And he just comes in and just shits the bed every single game is absolutely kind of hilarious. David Robertson is like that one player that the Mets can trade that does not fundamentally alter the direction of the franchise in the way that like trading Max Scherzer or trading Pete Alonso would. But he's also, as you said, the one guy you can't trade if you want to win baseball games, right? Like you can trade Tommy Pham, you can trade Mark Hanna, and it doesn't fundamentally upend who plays, but who closes games if David Robertson isn't there? I don't know. It's it's out of Vino and he does well 60% of the time. Like, yeah, it's uh it's Robertson is, is that weird need to hold on to guy if you want to win baseball games, but also like, is he even gonna be on the Mets next year? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, and you know, I don't I still don't see them trading Scherzer or Verlander. I, I think of the two shares, it would be more likely, but I still just think that's there's too many moving parts there. They'd have to pay like $80 million in that trade just to get any prospect of note. And at that point, you're just buying a prospect for $80 million. Then you're going to have to spend money to sign a pitcher next year. Like they've kind of locked themselves into this situation. The only way that they get out of the situation would be like a real hard reset, but I don't see them doing that just because when you have the money of Steve Cohen and you want to win a championship, which he seems to keep saying he wants to do, so I'm going to believe him. Um, doing all of this for a hard reset isn't really conducive to that endpoint. Yeah, the the Mets can't really hard re- reset and build a contender considering how long the championship window is for the Atlanta Braves. Like They have built themselves a perennial contender in Atlanta, <laughs> And the only way the Mets can compete against that perennial contender is Steve Cohen's wallet. That's it. Spending money on talented players as of right now is the only way because it's going to take years to build up to something that 
even remotely resembles what they've built in Atlanta. And even then, Atlanta's got a head start. So like, it, it doesn't make sense to me either uh, that the Mets would hard reset everything. If, if they trade Alonzo, you know that is what is going to happen. But I, I, I agree with you. I don't think it, it goes in that direction either. And I think it's I think the trading Pete Alonzo stuff is really stu- like ridiculous to be putting out there. They're not I I very I see a very slim chance that that actually happens just because I mean we've talked about it before. It's kind of a slap in the face to the fans and that that does signify a, a hard reset when you trade Pete Alonzo, but if you're trading Pete Alonzo, you're giving up hope on years. This isn't just oh well, we can, you know, like this is like we got 2 years more like the the commonly held belief is that the Mets will pay up and extend Alonzo at some point. Um, because they kind of have to. They're kind of locked into that, right? At this point, who's who are they calling up to usurp him at first base against Mark Vientos? Like, I, not to rag on the guy. I've seen him play. Doesn't impress me. He can't make contact ever. You know, if he, if he makes contact, that ball goes a hell of a long way. But he can't just ever. It, it's, it's. And he's not that good of a fielder to, you know, not that Alonzo's winning a gold glove anytime soon, but he's getting better, and Mark Vientos has just looked bad there. I mean, he could get better, but are you really going to throw away the best hitter that your team has produced from the minor leagues in a very, very long time just because you're bad this year? There's ways to fix yourself next year. If you trade Alonzo, you're not doing that. You are hard resetting, and at that point, you're trading Jeff McNeil and you know all these other players. That what's the point of holding on to them if you're not going to hold on to Alonzo? Yeah, trading Alonzo, I think, is based on this assumption that power hitting first basemen are easy to develop, and that may be true for a lot of organizations, but the Mets are not one of those organizations. How many power hitting first basemen has this franchise developed? Lucas Duda. <laughs> I, I don't know who else beyond that. Like the fact that Pete Alonso can be penciled in for 40 home runs a year, not a small thing. That's that's a really important thing to keep in a lineup. And the fact that he's so young and cost controlled over the next couple of years makes him such an attractive thing for the Mets to build around instead of trying to undersell at this point. So yeah, I agree. I, I, I don't think that Pete is necessarily as important to the 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 hopes of the franchise is some of the other players they've penned to long-term deals like uh lindor and um and, and brandon nimmo for example um but yeah he's he's still going to be an important part of the lineup hopefully for years to come and uh i will be sad if he leaves uh but i agree with you i i, I think the chances of that happening are pretty slim yeah um so we're a little bit over our usual you know, time limit, and I want to give your voice a little bit of a break. So let's take a break, and then we'll come back. And we're back. Um, in the second part of the show, you know, we usually do our gay stuff. There was a big story that just broke. Kevin Maxson, who's the I'm actually going to just read the tweet from Adam Schefter. Um, Jaguars assistant strength and conditioning coach Kevin Maxson has become the first male coach in major Americans professional. Major American men's professional sports to publicly come out as gay, telling out sports he didn't want to hide who he is any longer and to inspire others. Um, that's a long, that's a long tweet. There's a lot of a uh, lot of qualifiers in there, but um, I mean it's cool. That's 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 really cool that that he feels 
comfortable enough, especially in a sport like the NFL, which I don't think anyone would act like is the most progressive sport in America, but that he would feel that comfortable to come out in that environment. Yeah. Um, long tweet because it has a lot of qualifiers because I, <laughs> I, I, I skimmed it at first and initially thought that Adam Schefter was saying that this was the first um, assistant coach to come out as gay. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, Becky Hammond exists. There, there are many like female coaches in the NFL. Like what are we um, talking about? Um, uh, not, not Becky Hammond. She's not in the NFL and she's not gay. I think oh. you're thinking of Katie. Um, the one with the 49ers. No, Katie. no, 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 no. I, I, I'm talking, no, Becky Hammond, the, uh, she was an assistant coach with the, with the, with the Spurs. Does not she have a wife? No, she has a husband and three kids. Is that? Oh my goodness! I'm so terrible <laughs> with this. No, I, I listen. Uh, it shocked me when I found out too. But she's, she is straight. My goodness. Okay. Well, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm gonna shut up <laughs> for the next two minutes. But um, yeah, it's it's the the one with the 49ers, Katie. What's her name? We have to look this up because it's really gonna bother me. But she was um, I believe she's come out. Which Katie Sowers, um. But yeah, again, there's there's been other coaches in professional sports to have come out. I mean, it's it's not the first, but it's cool that he think he feels comfortable again in in a environment like the NFL for a man to feel comfortable coming out and in any sport, really, any men's sport. Uh it's it's that's progress. That's really good progress. I'm I'm doing some googling and I'm finding Becky Hammond has a partner named Brenda Milano and two adopted children. I could have sworn when I, because I follow her on Instagram, could have sworn it was a she had a husband. My goodness. Well, now we're we're really we're gonna. This is we, fascinating radio. <laughs> we, are, we are derailed. My the I, I had a couple of observations when when I read the the Kevin Maxson news. My first observation um, was that yeah, the the tweet itself had a lot of qualifiers is the first male coach in major Americans men's professional sports. Like that's, that's a lot of adjectives, but uh, the reason why there are so many adjectives there is because news like this is happening more often than, um, than it you know, was 10 years ago. This, this is something that would have made major, major headlines. And the fact that this is happening, you know, not, frequently but it's happening frequently enough that we have to start adding a lot adding a lot more adjectives to the trailblazers i think is is a really really cool and good thing similarly if you go to the tweet and you read the comments i'd say like 80 to 90 percent of them are in some vein of who cares or what's the big deal or like it's this is just a football coach what does it matter and it, it kind of hurts a little bit to, to read those, but then like in the, the grand context of the, the history of queer figures in sports, it, it's also kind of nice to, to see like so many people who have the platform and the ability to spew hatred and vitriol instead are just kind of like, eh, whatever, shrug, let's just, you know, play football games because that's what it should be. It, it should be no one gives a shit. It should be like we shouldn't be prying too much into these people's personal lives because it has no relation to how well this guy can coach or how well this person can play. It's 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 just about sports at the end of the day. And I, I think it's kind of nice that this story was as low key 
and well-received as it was. And I'm glad to see that this is becoming more and more of a norm. Yeah, I mean, it, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the response would not have been who cares. This would have been very different. Um, and I mean, of course, the, there's there's still going to be people, especially in sports fandom, male men's sports fandom, um, who aren't going to respond with who cares. But as the amount of who cares grows, that is, that's, that's <laughs> who cares is better than homophobia, like blatant homophobia, which is nice. Um, it's just, it's really interesting that the NFL has, has sort of, I mean, who was that player in like the early 20, 2010s who came out right before he was drafted? Was it? Oh, uh, Michael like, Sam, Michael Sam. Michael Sam. Like this was, I feel like they're constantly doing, like, this is constantly like a forefront thing for them. Carl Nassib, like these are, this is like, they, they're really jumping up the numbers over any other men's sport. What what is that? What is it about football? What is it about the NFL specifically that? And I know we've we've asked this question before, and we we've put out some some ideas. It's a numbers game. There's a lot more players. There's a lot more coaches in professional football than there are in professional basketball and professional uh, baseball. And so it would make sense that you know the NFL has double digit people who have come out of the closet post retirement, and baseball has three. But what is it about the NFL that? is not necessarily progressive on these issues, but they are lapping the field against um, against other leagues that are considered to be, you know, far more open about these these sorts of ideas. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I couldn't tell you, I don't really watch NFL. Um, it's just not my type of sport. Um, although, you know, give it three years. I used to think basketball wasn't really my type of sport. And now look at us. Um, but it, it's... It's very interesting to see this sort of progression happen, um, and I'm hoping that, much like any sort of progress like this, it would start. It will start to go into other sports. I think, um, you know, obviously Jason Collins has has came out while he was with the Nets, and um, I think basketball is is an arena where that wouldn't be super um, out of the ordinary. Uh, Baseball's probably the last frontier on this one where I feel like that one's going to be that one's going to take the longest for something to happen there. Um but it, yeah, it's 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 very interesting that it's NFL the NFL. Um I don't know. I don't know what the I don't know what 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 special powers they got over there, but could they spread it around? Yeah, the last observation I had was uh, I read that he was a strength and conditioning coach, and of course he's a strength and conditioning coach. <laughs> like, I, I, for for anyone who has not been around gay areas, uh, if find an LA Fitness, find a twenty four hour fitness, and you will see some of the biggest, strongest men you will have ever seen. And it, it does not surprise me that the Jacksonville Jaguars have have hired him for his abilities to build strength, because that that is a a very common thing amongst gay men. <laughs> um i do want to just say i i looked it up i don't know what i was thinking of i i'm gonna take your word for it i don't think she's ever posted about either way on her instagram but i must be thinking about someone else if you're seeing all this stuff coming up about her having a wife or a partner or whatever i'm gonna i'm gonna believe you on becky hammond um really quick i want to just get into as well uh the women's world cup has just started. Um, the U.S. just played their first game on Friday night. I wasn't able to watch most of it, but I did see the last 10 minutes or so. This is a, um, if you 
are gay and like sports, there's a lot of gays in the in the women's world. Cup. there's actually also, and I want to get my my wording here correct. Um, on Team Canada, there is a player named Quinn, um, mononym Quinn. Uh, she, excuse me, they. Wow, I'm already fucking up. They are the first out trans non-binary athlete. They were the first trans non-binary athlete to complete compete at the Olympics, the first to medal, the first to earn a gold medal, and now they're in the Women's World Cup with Team Canada. Um, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of representation to be found in women's sports, and I think that the Women's World Cup is also a good place to look for that. I mean, obviously the women's U.S. team. Um, this in this as someone who's followed this for this is my third World Cup I'm watching in full. Um, this is probably the straightest team they've ever had, but they st- you know they still they've got Megan Rapinoe. I mean that that's like four that, that's like four gay people in one. I mean she is the best. Um, this is her last World Cup, so if you want to watch the last dance of one of our great American athletes, I really recommend it. Um, I don't know how far the U.S. is going to go. I want to believe that they're going to win again, but it's a very different team than they've had in the past. Um, but it's definitely, this is going to, I can see a lot of storylines coming out of this one for us to talk about. This also seems to be the World Cup cycle where the the U.S. women's team uh, is the most comfortable with themselves and the most comfortable with their their style and the way they present themselves. I don't want to say that they're fully comfortable with it because I don't know them as individuals. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I see a lot of colorful hair. I see a lot of really fun outfits. I see a lot of um, advertising, uh, uh, and I see a lot of um, a lot of really really strong athletes that uh, are finally able to express themselves the the way that they want to and the way that they deserve to express themselves for so long. And that's really cool. I'm not the biggest soccer fan myself, so I don't know how much I will be watching uh, the World Cup. And I'm also not uh, the most patriotic person, so I don't exactly <laughs> wrap myself in in the colors the way a lot of people do. Um, but I think as queer athletes, it doesn't really get that much stronger than the U.S. women's national team, does it? No, I mean this is the this is the team where your heroes like the the all time legends of the team include people like Abby Wambach and Megan Rapinoe. I mean, there's there's so many great sh- and and as you progress through these teams, like you've said, they become more and more comfortable with themselves. I don't. I'm trying to think. Kelly O'Hara is on the the team. She's one of my favorite players. Um, she wasn't out two World Cups ago. And now she's fully out and she's, you know, she's the cool, like, these are the coolest people on earth. And even the players who aren't gay, the the straight players are so, they're like such strong allies in a way that isn't performative, you know, like, they're just like, these are my friends and why wouldn't I be supportive of people's rights to exist and stuff like that like you you look at this team and you have like Trinity Rodman is like one of the coolest people on the team or uh, Crystal Dunn and these are people who are straight but they're just like yeah you know what you're gonna fuck with them you're gonna fuck with me too like that's just that's it it's a it's a fun if you're even if you're not super into soccer the people are so fun to follow and that's what got me into it at first was just i wasn't i had no idea what the rules of soccer were but i was like wow megan rufino is the coolest person i've ever seen i have to watch her play not a small thing either. You can watch this World Cup and not feel bad about the human rights abuses in Qatar last yeah. December. Australia, New Zealand, as far as I know, are pretty pretty fun, cool places, you know? Yeah. 
And uh, fingers crossed, I think that they're trying to get the next one back to the U.S., in which case I will be spending tons of money I do not have to go to this world, to the 2027 World Cup. Very nice. Um, well, uh, I think it's time for us to take a break and head into our third act. All right. And we are back with Act 3. Um, Christian, I heard Christine has something to say, another question, just a statement. What is it? It's not, it's not really a question. This is uh, something that she said regarding baseball uh, drunkenly on the 4th of July while we were watching fireworks, and she felt the need to record it and send it to me. Uh, we're, we're going to hope that technology doesn't fail us here, and here we go. How, how can you go, how, how can you be the Astros and cheat and win the World Series and then win the World Series again, and you're probably still cheating, and nobody does anything about it. It's clear that the everybody knows that the Astros are still cheating, and you can put me on the record as saying that, and nobody's doing anything about it. Not one person, not the police, not the president, <laughs> nobody. I want answers. Uh, so, Grace, do you have any answers? Uh, I mean... Unfortunately, I don't think that this falls under the purview of our of the police. Um, really, this falls under the purview of um, noted fuck up Rob Manfred, who fucked this one up too. Um, they could have done something about it, then they decided not to. Like that was really the 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 issue there. He just didn't do anything about it, and now, I mean, they're not the only team that that cheats too. Not to say that what they did was fine. That is horrific. And it upsets me to this day that that happened. But, um, yeah, I mean, they're not, they're definitely, they're not even on the record as the only team that's cheated. I mean, we know about the Red Sox and the Yankees, you know, like this is noted teams have been cheating. Teams will continue to cheat. Um, they probably should have done something more. They definitely should have done something more, but, um, yeah, I mean, listen, if President Joe Biden wants to take away their two World Series championships, I'm not going to do anything about it, but I don't think I don't think he's going to be doing that. Uh, no, I, I agree. <laughs> uh, I, I don't necessarily buy the idea that um, Major League Baseball couldn't have punished the players because it would have caused an uproar amongst the rest of the players. I think the rest of the players probably wanted to see some punishments amongst the Houston Astros players as well. I think the the slippery slope that they fall under is if you punish the Astros players, well, now you got to do the same thing for the Yankees. Now you got to do the same thing for the Red Sox. Now a couple years later, you may have to do the same thing for the Giants. Not that you know anything's been proven about their 106-win season or whatever, <laughs> but like it's... It's a very slippery slope when you start to punish players with the understanding that a lot of other players are doing this as well. Because we saw this during the steroid era. Like Major League Baseball knew that they had a problem on their hand and kind of sat on their hands. A, because they were making a whole bunch of money during this era. But B, also because they knew that once they they opened this can of worms, a whole lot of people are going to be looking in. And that's exactly what happened. The federal government stepped in to try to sort out the steroid scenario. And like, in hindsight, it all looks pretty stupid, but like, you don't want that kind of attention on your sport if you're major league baseball. So like, I get it. I understand it. But like, yeah, it, it, it still feels kind of weird that like the Houston Astros kind of got off scot-free and 
who who's the one that suffered the most carlos beltran but even still he's still hired like with a major league organization he's he's not out of baseball so like yeah i, I it's it's such a, a black mark on the game itself and you can really only blame the astros and maybe i guess the rest of major league baseball for allowing it to happen when they knew that it was happening but like i I don't have a good answer for you, Christine. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't really know what what more else could have been done. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I think Rob Manfred came out and said like, "Oh, I could have done more." Yeah, thanks for saying that. Six years after the fact, yeah. or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, you could have done more. He also just in the middle of that referred to the the World Series ch- trophy as just a hunk of metal. Like this dude does not care. That that will always mess me up. But like, yeah, I mean, Carlos Beltran suffered the most. He lost the manager job he had, but he's back with the Mets and even before he got rehired by the Mets he was working in the Yankees uh booth it's no one faced any consequence the the top consequence that's been faced other than that so far other than that and the the uh Cora and Hinch getting suspended for a year and Jeff Lunau being basically banned from baseball um but even not really he would have he would have made his way back with the Mets if A-Rod bought the team um is like Carlos Beltran is by stats, you could say pretty definitively probably a first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't know when he's going to get in. If he's going to get in, I assume he gets in at some point um, just because it was the last year of his career. But I think you're going to see this start to bear out in a lot of these guys if they have Hall of Fame caliber careers, how that happens. But at the same time, I mean, who are the steroids guys who got dinged the most in in with the Hall of Fame? It's literally just who? Bonds, Sosa, and McGuire. All the other guys who, I guess, A-Rod too, but A-Rod's not done on the ballot. He could make a comeback, but that that's going to be the really the place where these guys get punished is if he's on the Hall of Fame ballot. And it's it's so arbitrary too, right? Because like the you have other steroid guys like Andy Pettit that had no trouble getting into the Hall of Fame. It's, it's, it's all about optics. It's all about PR. So like Carlos Beltran not earning the respect of the writers is what is going to determine whether he gets in the hall of fame or not, because you're right. He is a first ballot hall of famer and it hurts my heart because like he would go in with a Mets hat and that's not something that Mets fans get very often. Um, but like, it's, it's all going to be about optics. Like it would not surprise me if someone like uh, Beltran and Bregman, if he retires with a hall of fame career, get shut out, but Altuve gets absolved of everything because yeah. you know, he, you know, he like, very reasonably did not participate in the scandal, but also didn't really do anything about it either while on the team and probably has the same disqualification towards the Hall of Fame as anybody else on that Astros team. But like, you know, people like Altuve, so he's going to get in regardless. Not to take anything away from your steroids guy point, but Andy Pettit isn't in the Hall of Fame. What am I doing? (laughs) But there are, there are other guys who are in there, you know, not again, not to take away from your point. There are other guys who got in there who just weren't, the faces of that issue you know bonds mcguire sosa they were the faces of the steroid issue and then other guys just sort of scooted in i mean there was that whole with uh big poppy there was that whole failed test now that was before it was against the rules in baseball but at the same time you could say that about mcguire and bonds and them it's it's weird to see how that will bear out i i do think beltran's gonna get in there and as someone who I mean, I grew up, I loved Carlos Beltran. He's one of my favorite players on the team. That will make me happy. But at the same time, there's going to be a weird feeling associated to that because 
of everything that happened with the Astros. And, I mean, before he was on the Astros, he was on the Yankees, and they were a team that had these issues too, so you don't know how long this had been happening. You know, with him specifically, you don't know what where the line was drawn. I'm going to slightly derail this to say that Andy Pettit should be in the Hall of Fame. He has like <laughs> 250 wins. He has 60 B-War, 117 ERA+. Plus. Like, not spectacular, but like, you can't tell the story of those late 90s Yankees without telling the story of Andy Pettit. He's 68.2 F-War. This dude's a Hall of Famer. What are we doing? <laughs> It, you know, it's I, my thing is always with that is like he's in the Hall of Fame somewhere. He's just not inducted in the Hall of Fame. They're telling mm. the story of baseball. with That's my thing. Whenever someone's like, you can't tell the story of baseball without Barry Bonds. I don't think Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame, even removed from the steroid stuff, because he was a terrible human being who beat his wife. And I have that feeling about anyone who's a domestic abuser. They should not be in the Hall of Fame. I know there are once we're in the Hall of Fame. I don't think that stops us from becoming better than we were in the past and not inducting them. Omar Vizquel very rightfully plummeted after all that stuff came out about him. Andrew Jones, I don't think should be in there for the same reason. Like this is, that's my hard line on this is like, if you're a domestic abuser, you do not get the respect of being in the hall of fame. Even if you are the greatest player of all time, I don't give a shit. Um, But Barry Bonds is in the hall of fame. Like I've gone to the hall of fame. He is in there. He's just doesn't have a plaque with his face in, in bronze, you know? Yep. Very good point. Um, I, I think we, we should make a smooth transition from, <laughs> from Hall of Fame talk to movie talk. I have a suspicion of what the movie you're going to talk about this week is, but I'm going to let you have it because I could be proven wrong. Okay, so the movie sensation sweeping the nation this week is Barbenheimer. Um, I'm devastated that I have only, I have not been able to see Oppenheimer yet. I'm going to see that hopefully tomorrow. Um, but my... I'm going to do two movies because we've been we've been off for a few weeks and I had one that I wanted to do specifically for last week that I'm going to do this week as well. But I'm going to I'm going to talk about Barbie first. Um, Barbie's really fun. It's I'm I love Greta Gerwig. She made my favorite movie of all time. Lady Bird. Little Women is is in my favorites of all time. Barbie is in is her worst film by my standards, but still great. Like I gave Little, Lady Bird and Little Women five stars and barbie four and a half stars like that's just um it's way weirder than you think it's gonna be um but it's so good with the exception of the will ferrell storyline which i think could be scrubbed from the movie and it would make the movie better every time he showed up on screen i was like oh god this guy again and i like will ferrell and other things it's just he just that that storyline didn't add anything for me um and i i was in the theater i didn't see it with my friends like they I didn't go with my friends but I walked into the theater my friends were there at the same time as me with their family so when we were walking out we were talking about it and they had the the same feelings but it, it is remarkable there's a lot of different things I felt watching that movie um the inspirations that you could feel from like stuff my my favorite ones were the ones that I could see from Powell and Pressburger there was the the I'm just Ken Dan sequence reminded me of this old um this Powell and Pressburger film from 1945 I believe called A Matter of Life and Death um it also had made me think of like an American in Paris and uh singing in the rain just with like the scope of some of them of, of those musical numbers and this the stylization which I know she's spoken about those films being inspiration as well Greta Gerwig um I was thinking about how there's and there's been a little bit of discourse about this online the the film could be read through a queer lens that you could you could say 
you could see Barbie in that way, which I think is something that Greta Gerwig does a lot. Um, I'd love to see her just write like a outwardly queer character. I, she has not done that since Lucas Hedges' character in Lady Bird. Um, but she, it's it's a very odd movie in a very good way. Like the weirder it gets, the better it gets. It takes a lot. It's like a lot of weird um, like stylistic things that made me absolutely fall in love with it. And also the best last line in a movie I've heard in a very long time. Um. I don't know if you have anything you want to ask about Barbie before I go on to my next film. I don't. And the, okay. and it's only because <laughs> I, I I don't have much of an interest in seeing either of these movies. Um, and you haven't really sold it very much for me either. So I, I don't, I, I think I feel confident in my appraisal. So I, I will allow you, well, I don't allow you, you feel, <laughs> feel free to go on to your next movie. Okay. So the other movie I wanted to suggest, I wanted to recommend last week um, is Are You There, Got It to Me, Margaret, um, which came out earlier in the year. I believe it's on, I know it came out on Blu-ray. I believe it's on video on demand. I don't think it's actually streaming for free anywhere. It's like one of those, you know, you have to pay six bucks or whatever. Um, my mom's birthday was last week. And when I saw Are You There, Got It to Me, Margaret, it, it's such a beautiful portrait of mother-daughter relationships um and it was a it, i read the book for the first time like a month before seeing the movie because i wanted to make sure i understood what judy bloom was going for and then saw the movie it's such an amazing adaptation that kelly freeman craig who wrote and directed um the edge of 17 which is a great film um she found she made that she basically put that book on screen in a way that's very difficult to do for a lot of adaptations. I, the book isn't hard to do that for conceptually. There's nothing wild about it, but it's it's a lot of internalized thought in a book and she put that on screen fantastically, really fleshed out the mother character who's played by Rachel McAdams, and I just think it's so it was such a beautiful film in terms of the way it depicted mother-daughter relationships in both its their their the the beauty of them and also the times that they get you know any mother-daughter relationship can get strained and 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 hurtful at times just because of the close emotional connection there um it, it was the best depiction of that relationship i felt like since ladybird um a movie that i will never stop talking about um it is so like specific like it's so good in terms of set design and art design and stuff like getting it right down to the like perfection of the capturing that 70s feel i don't think it was shot on film but it does look like it was shot on film which i always love too um and rachel mcadams is great benny safty it's always weird for me to see him acting because I'm in my head. I'm like, this is the guy who made Uncut Gems and Good Time. And now he's playing like the doofy dad in this movie. Um, but the girl who plays Margaret, uh, Abby Ryder Forston, I believe her name is, she is so good. I typically don't like most child actors just because they have a sense of precociousness that bleeds into the work. And then they, they're like a little too cutesy. But every once in a while, there's a really really good child actor she is so good in this role that it's a lot of her thoughts there's narration of hers it's stuff that could get very actory 
for a child like like oh my i've been coached to to do this or whatever and that that's what my acting teacher says so i gotta do that it, she is so naturalistic it reminded me a lot of the same sort of naturalism of um brooklyn prince in the florida project where it just felt like i was watching a kid in their life that someone had stuck a camera there and filmed i i it's one of my favorite movies of the year as well as barbie but i actually do prefer are you there god it's me margaret to barbie how does this movie place in the pantheon of YA adaptations? Like, is this amongst your favorites? Is this close? Like, what what is the, the movie you can most compare this to? Oh, this is a difficult question. I'm trying to think. Because um, most of my favorite YA movies are original stories. They're not adaptations. Um I'm trying to think because it's it's a weird thing too because there's not there's not a lot of movies made a, based on books about young girls. This is the first Judy Bloom book that's been adapted to a film, so there's no really clear way to say it's most like this. That I shocks will, me. I had no idea that. Yes, that, no that was Bloom part of the selling point that she has never. They have never adapted one of her. I think they might have adapted one of her other books as like a TV movie in the eighties, but it was small scale TV movie. And it like, literally that's it. It was that. And then this is the first one that was made to be in the movie theater as an adaptation. It's, it's definitely up there. Like I would say it is one of the best ones I've seen um, in the last 15 years, you know, because I think, I think every decade you get like three to five really good young adult films and i would feel confident we're only three years in. i feel confident that at the end of this decade this will be one of the ones we point to i think it's it's up there i don't have a good comparison for it just simply because there's no film to compare it to that is an adaptation as well like the best to compare it to is like slightly younger edge of 17 which is why kelly freeman craig made this because she's good at this I think another issue is that a lot of YA films made over the past decade have all delved into like the fantasy genre. Yeah. It's it's a lot of Hunger Games. It's it's a lot of Harry Potter, and we 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 don't really get you know the Fault in Our Stars too often. Like we we get the the big budget fantasy stuff that like sells really well. Um, I know that this is a very difficult movie to compare it to because there's little uh, to about them that they share. Uh, but I really like Holes, and I, I just wanted to bring up Holes because I think it's a great movie. And I rewatched it recently while I was sick, and I was like, "This movie's still great." Yeah, it's you know what else is difficult too about comparing this movie to other YA movies is most YA movies focus on kids when they're fifteen or sixteen years old, like in the mm. in the thick of teenage years. This movie's focused on a girl who is about to turn thirteen. You do not see that very often in the mm. YA genre. It's typically we want to put it them a little bit older. It'll sell well. It, it this is, it feels very different just by base of who it is about and who it is um, depicting. Do you think that this movie will get any awards consideration, or do you think it will be considered like you know any other kids slash YA movie and kind of be ignored for that? So here's here's. I it came out in April, which is typically not great, but also we just saw um, everything everywhere all at once win Best Picture, and it came out in March. Not not at all similar movies in in anything other than the fact that it came out early in the year. I think 
I think it is so James Brooks, James L. Brooks produced this and he's a you know, he did broadcast news, he did terms of endearment. This is a guy that everyone likes in the industry. Um and he's very well renowned and he likes to put his name to young upcoming filmmakers to help them make films and he's very close with Kelly Freeman Craig. He produced The Edge of Seventeen. Um so I think it has the people behind it to make some sort of run happen. I also think um that the I don't know if you've seen this, this because the writers are on strike and the actors are on strike. These studios are starting to consider pushing films that they have coming later in the year off to next year. So that way they can have the actors eventually promote them. Because if they put out Dune in October and the actor strike isn't up, you can't have Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya and, you know, all these people out promoting it. And that's not good for their sales. So I think it depends on how like how many nominations it gets i think will depend on what happens with the strikes and the release dates of the movies later in the year i could definitely see an adapted screenplay nominee i don't know how strong the category is going to be but sometimes it's last year was kind of a weaker category um i could definitely see it getting in there especially it's the first judy bloom book to ever be not adapted to the big screen and stuff like that that's a good selling point you can have judy bloom go out there for that um i also think depending on how heavy the supporting actress category is, which if the color purple moves, that's going to open up a lot of space. Um, I think they could get Rachel McAdams in. She is, I love Rachel McAdams. I think she's a very underrated actor and this is the best I've ever seen her. She is so good in this movie. And I mean, it helps that they fleshed out the character for her. Um, but she is, She's firing on all cylinders in this movie, and it kind of captures everything she does well as an actor, both in the comedy and the drama realm. Um, I would love to see her get nominated. I don't think she'll win, just because, like, I, I've been positive. I'm, until proven otherwise, I think Lily Gladstone's winning for Killers of the Flower Moon, but I think they could, I think this could definitely get some nominations. And again, there's 10 Best Picture nominees. So I think if they push off some of these other movies, I think they could sneak it in there. All right. Well, that that is a decent <laughs> endorsement. I, I actually might go watch that. You you have sold that in a way that uh, you did not sell Barbie. We'll get you on Barbie. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that's a, a nice way to close out our episode for this week. Sorry we've been gone for so long, but uh, it's it's hard for me to do a podcast when I don't have a voice. So thanks to everyone for remaining patient if this is something that you were looking forward to. Uh, Grace, do you have anything to add before we close out? Uh, no, let's, can't wait to see what the next week brings. The, this might be a very different tone podcast, depending on how the Mets play this week. Next we, week. Also, we also have to work on our timing because last time we, we talked about the Mets, we did it so like ebulliently and then they went on to lose like four straight. So, uh, I'm, hopefully we don't jinx them in the upcoming series. I feel like every time we talk about the Mets, however we talk about them, the next week they're the opposite of that. Every time we're like, this team sucks, they pull off like four wins in a row. And then every time we're like, hey, they just won four in a row. They're pretty good. They suck again. It's I think it's just us. We should just talk about them like they suck all the time and then they'll win every game. Nah, we're not that powerful. <laughs> we don't have we don't have any we don't have any hand in this. This is not us, I promise you. <laughs> Alright, uh, thanks everyone. Uh, thanks for listening again and see you next week.